Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Once again, God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is the report of the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word, asking that the truth contained therein would be communicated and uh, illumined to us, and that your spirit would work, for unless your spirit works, O Father, we will remain unchanged. So through your powerful, inerrant word, O teach us and build us up in faith, hope, and love for the honor of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk through this sin-cursed world, the desolate place that this world so often is, Jesus Christ ministers to us. He teaches us. He heals us. And he nourishes us on our pilgrim way. Last week, we saw from the account of John the Baptist's death and the feast that Herod threw, that feast of debauchery and sin, that the kingdom of heaven does not provide for us a total escape from death, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ uh, has the glory of eternal life and blessedness with God, but it is not apart from death. Indeed, Jesus Christ himself had to go through the throes of death. And so he calls us to do something similar, to look to him in faith, to suffer for his name, to, to live for him, and to die for him, knowing that we are members of this kingdom and that we share in this great joy and blessedness of the kingdom. But as we walk through this desolate place, as members of his kingdom, we are given help for the pilgrim journey. And this help is pictured for us as a feast of a good king, a feast of a good king. Imagine two feasts or two parties. 
The first one is in many ways similar to Herod's party, to to Herod's feast. It is a night of drunkenness and revelry and debauchery. Things quickly get out of hand and rather than of a responsible enjoyment of things, a dispute arises, a fight breaks out, and someone is tragically killed. And everyone leaves that so-called feast or party with what? With regret with immense regret for having been there, for having seen this kind of thing. It sounds odd, but you often hear about this on the news, don't you? A family party or some kind of party, and someone shows up who should not be there, or a dispute arises, and some kind of tragedy happens, right? What begins as sort of a well-intentioned thing can often devolve into something much worse. A second feast, the host directs and... Uh, gives an evening where there is a perfect amount of everything. Great food and drink, enjoyable conversation and fellowship, enjoying many different good things, things in which we take joy. And everyone leaves that night not with regret, but hoping to do it again sometime soon. And, And even to think about who else in my life might I involve in this kind of a joyful celebration and get-together. What we have here today in Matthew 14 is a feast of contrast. Matthew puts this here uh, right after the feast of Herod to show us the better way of the good king. Jesus hosts a feast much different than Herod's where he exercises compassion for his people, where he equips us to walk through the realities, the often difficult uh, realities of this world. He's a much better king. He's king of a much better kingdom. He has an outward-reaching compassion, Jesus Christ does. He, He has a sustaining grace for his wilderness people. All of these things are brought before us in this wonderful text today. And so the call for today is to come to be a joyful guest at the feast of the, good thi- of, of the good king, to partake now of what we will enjoy on the last day, and to face the world in the compassion of Jesus Christ. Come with joy to the feast of the good king, partake now of what we will enjoy on the last day, and face the world in the compassion of Jesus Christ. The first thing then, a better feast hosted by a better king. You see, you say, well, is this really pictured for us in, in the text as a, a, a feast, a party, a banquet? I would say yes. Verse 19 emphasizes that. It, it presents Jesus as the great host. He takes charge and he says, have everyone sit down. And then he begins to distribute his food, his blessing amidst his seated guest. It's obviously quite different from Herod's feast, but those contrasts are intentional to teach us things about Jesus Christ and to emphasize all of these things about what he does, the superior nature of the good king, Jesus. Think about Herod's feast. What was it? Well, it was an exclusive party for the elite, wasn't it? There wasn't invitations sent out around to uh, the common folk. In fact, common people, how do they figure into Herod's feast? They're only there for entertainment and exploitation. The entertainment for the evening ends up being John the Baptist's head on a platter, exploiting 
the commoners. It's a a drunken, revelrous night filled with debauchery. It moves from sensuality to debauchery to murder. There's this kind of devolving of things at Herod's feast. What are the underlying things that that the kind of uh, the underlying ambitions behind Herod's feast? Well, pride, Herod and certainly Herodias and others are prideful. They're powerful. They want more power. They're deceitful. You see this especially in Herodias, Herod's illegitimate wife. She takes over the feast. She takes over the night in order to get what she wants. There's a a twisted sense of selfish honor, but, but everything looks inward. Herod is worried about himself. Herodias wants what she wants. Everyone is kind of working for whatever they can get. So now look at Jesus' feast. Much different. He invites everyone to sit down around him. There's a generosity. There's a benevolence to all the things that Jesus is doing. It's ultimately fulfilled in that everyone eats their fill. Not only does he invite everyone, but he feeds everyone. Herod is feeding himself in the palace. Jesus feeds commoners in the field. Now, it's not so much that Jesus is only ministering to the poor. It's that Jesus is ministering to all who come to him. That's the picture that we have. Uh, here, that he is, as the, the King James puts it, he's no respecter of persons, right? God's mercy, his compassion, his grace can be shed upon those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are common, those who are royalty. Jesus is engaging in righteousness at his feast. He teaches, then he heals, then he nourishes. Whereas Herod, of course, it is uh, debauchery and drunkenness and revelry. Herod's is a feast of taking. Jesus is a feast of giving. What motivates Jesus? Herod is sinful, selfish, pridefulness, and twisted honor. What motivates Jesus? Love and compassion. He sees people in their need, and he has compassion on them in verse 14. He says in verse 16, they, they need not go away. Do not send them away. We can attend to their needs here. He tells the twelve, you give them something to eat. And I think there's a little bit of a a neat lesson in what he says there. The the twelve bristle at this. He says, you give them something to eat. And what is he saying for them to do? You give them your food. You give up what you have yourself so as to feed these people. Now, who of you or who of us who has a hungry stomach and food in your hand wants to give that food away. It's not an instinct that we have, is it? Right? To give up something that you have when you are hungry. And so they, they, they bristle at this, but then Jesus teaches them this very important lesson. And when he sends them out into the world later, they're going to remember this. That with Jesus, he can, he can meet the need. He can give, he not only gives of himself, but he gives generously and benevolently when it seems that there is not enough. So in many ways, it sets the bar for the rest of their ministry, the 12 who would go out and establish the church. Jesus gives them this picture so that then they would go out and give the hungry masses something to eat in the ministry of God's word and sharing the bread of life, Jesus Christ, with them. But Jesus not only sees the human need and has compassion, he meets the human need. 
He gives them what is needed. In Jesus' hands, meager resources will suffice. One, uh, one commentator puts it this way. You know, everyone is, is worried. The 12 are worried. We only have seven items. We have five loaves and two fish, but they forgot to count one thing. They forgot the eighth ingredient, and it's the power of Jesus. It's really eight that you have. And so in Jesus' hands, meager resources will suffice. And this is a, something in which we take great comfort that meager resources suffice in our Lord Jesus Christ's hands. This is good as it relates to our own faith, because our own faith is often very weak. Frederick Buchner says this, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is the best any of us can really do. But thank God it is enough. Thank God it is enough that we can come to the Lord even with a weak faith. A true faith can at times be weak, and a weak faith can still grasp onto a perfect Savior. In His hands, meager resources will suffice, not only as it relates to our own faith, but also as, as it relates to the ministry of the church. How often ministers and proclaimers of the Word need to hear this, that the church of Jesus Christ is built with meager resources. Jars of clay who take this message of glory and honor to the nations. All of us who in many ways, and we are called to become witnesses for Jesus Christ, a, a light in the midst of the world, salt to the earth. And we do this work imperfectly. And yet the church continues to be built. And God continues to call people to himself. So two feasts, and in many ways, these two feasts teach us about the way of man and the way of God. They, they, they picture for us two different ways, really, to try to navigate this wilderness world that we are called to go through. How will you live this life? Will you live this life seeking to attain for yourself all of the pleasure that you can at the expense of others and at the expense of deep meaning and purpose of serving your God, of living sacrificially? Or will you see the way, the better way of the good King, Jesus? How does Herod live? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If we must die, then let us pursue pleasure. Let us do so not only ignoring others, but doing so at the expense of others. But Jesus gives us a better way. Why does serving God, things like delayed gratification, living sacrificially, dying to our lustful pleasure, why do all of those things work? Why is it a, a good thing to die to yourself and to give of yourself to serve God and to love others? Those may be great principles to live by as sort of a, a motivational speech. Someone might be able to, to, to express to you, apart from the Christian faith, that these are good principles to live by. But really, when you get down to the root of it, the reason why Jesus calls us to this and why we should, it should be our great joy to do so is because of the ultimate blessing that he gives to us in the eternal life that Jesus Christ wins. See, he lays before us what it truly means to live. He's not saying die to yourself 
and there will be nothing on the other side of that. He's saying, die to yourself and come truly live in me. The message of Scripture, of course, is not that all pleasure is bad, but that true pleasure is found only in communing with God. Isaiah 25, we read that today. A feast on the mountain of wonderful food and well-aged wine, communing with God. Is that a picture of a lack of fulfillment or is that a picture of great joy and richness? God places these things before us because he says, this is why you were made. This is why I created you. To have ultimate and true joy found only in me. Only in communing with me in and through Jesus Christ. So we are to see the good king and the good king's feast. And we are to come to it in the joy of faith. We are to come to it in the joy of faith. Why? Because he gives us this better way through the wilderness. Why? Why go to the good king's feast? Why make that what defines your life? Coming to Jesus as the bread of life. Coming to Jesus as the one who nourishes us and sustains us on our pilgrim way. As opposed to having something like Herod's feast. Why go to the good king's feast? Because of all that he does for us. He teaches. He heals. And he nourishes These three ideas that Jesus does here, teaches and heals and nourishes, they parallel exactly his, the three offices that he occupies as our Redeemer. He is prophet and he is priest and he is king. And they also parallel quite nicely with kind of the three things that that are put on display. This miracle of Jesus points us to, to really three main things in a redemptive sense. The Lord's Supper the last feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of all things, and the manna in the wilderness. Those three pictures are put before us in this passage. So the Lord's Supper then. How does this teach us about the Lord's Supper? We see clear parallels in what Jesus does. What does he do? He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. So Matthew, particularly Matthew and Luke, they connected this miracle to the Lord's Supper. And this precise connection is made in John 6, when John 6, and that's where John records the the feeding of the 5,000 men. And Jesus says, after he performs that miracle, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the Lord's Supper, we come to the, feet, to the table of the Lord because we believe only He is the bread of life. We must eat this bread. We must drink this cup. There aren't other ways to know and see and experience blessedness with God. It's only in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Not only the Lord's Supper, but also that great marriage feast of the land, the end of, of all things. In this passage, Jesus heals and he provides abundantly and eternally. Isaiah 25 pictures that for us well. We will feast on the abundance of God's house forever and ever. His resources will never run out. He always has enough to give to his people. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, death is defeated. Because in Jesus Christ, eternal life is given to us. This is what it says for us in Hebrews 2. 
Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here you have Jesus providing richly and abundantly with all of the leftovers that you have in that story, right? Twelve basketfuls. Complete abundance that he will give to us and he will give and he will give unto eternity because that is the way that he heals. You know, it's important to, to notice besides the resurrection, this is the only account in Jesus' life that is found in all four Gospels. You see the way in which this is wanting to be emphasized to us through the gospel writers and also through the Holy Spirit giving us uh, the scriptures himself. That this is the picture, right? That Jesus gives abundantly, that he is the only one to whom our souls can come, that he is truly the bread of life. So the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb, and then finally, the manna in the wilderness. Jesus here is the new and the better Moses who gives to us nourishment for the pilgrim way. The same exact uh, connection is made in John 6 once again. They said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, I am the manna in the wilderness. I am the one who will sustain my people in this desolate place. And the twelve, they come to Jesus, they say, this is a desolate place. Send them away. There's nothing we can give them. Jesus says, we can. We can give them. We can provide for them in the midst of this desolate place. The sustenance is Jesus Christ himself. And so we see the way that all of these things kind of connect, don't we? Because Jesus gives us of himself now as the bread of life to sustain us, just as he performs this miracle to provide uh, for these hungry people who are gathered around him. And that connects us to that, that, that reality of who Jesus is, thrusts us forward to the last day, that what we, what we are partaking of now by faith is the same thing that we will partake of in eternity. When we go to meet our Lord, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, what will, what will it be that provides us with joy and contentment and fulfillment? It will not just be that we are in a place that God has made for us. It will be that we see and behold Jesus Christ, that he will be the joy of our souls forever. What will be the abundance of which we partake for all eternity? Jesus Christ. And that is what we proclaim even as we come to the Lord's Supper now. As we partake of Jesus Christ by faith and feasting on his word and, and having the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are partaking even now of that eternal food, of that heavenly food. What is the food for your souls now is, is in a sense, as it were, cooked in the same kitchen 
as what we will have on the last day. It is prepared by the same hands. The only life of our souls now is the same as what it will be for all eternity. And he gives us this food for our pilgrim way. You see, all of this is emphasizing for us. Jesus Christ alone is the one who, as we walk through this wilderness, can teach us, can heal us, and can nourish us. He's the prophet who teaches. He's the priest who heals. He's the king who rules and who gives of his generosity and his benevolence. Love so amazing demands the response of faith. So one of those amazing pictures given to us under the inspiration of the Spirit. What an amazing picture of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. What an amazing account of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And what does it demand? It demands the response of faith. It demands that human hearts come before this glorious and beautiful Savior and fall down before Him in total submission, in joyful and glad submission. But Matthew doesn't record that kind of response. In fact, the silence of the crowds is rather deafening. Now, in uh, other Gospels, there are other uh, themes that they highlight. In John, after this miracle, the people say, well, we want to see another sign. And so Jesus is pointing out that it's, it's false faith in many of them. But Matthew just doesn't record the response of anyone. The silence is is deafening. There's an indifference to Jesus here. So the last thing that we'll consider is the, the danger of indifference. Do not be indifferent to the beautiful Savior. Do not be indifferent to this glorious and wonderful Jesus. Because their indifference will eventually turn to what? To hostility. Indifference towards Jesus by many turns to what? It turns to hostility by the time we move closer to the cross. And as hostility deepens, what you see is that the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ go deeper still. Deeper than the sinfulness and the hatred and the hostility of the sinful human heart. That Jesus will provide something greater as hostility is growing to him, he will provide something greater even than what he gives at this feast. See, that is the wonder and the glory of Christ, that when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The love of Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ conquers the human heart. The love of Christ is what a regenerated sinner sees and can do no else but to fall down before him. When you begin to grasp the depth of what God has done for you, you can do no else but to fall down in joyful submission and glad faith. And the warning is this, brothers and sisters, that on the last day, we think about this warning not only for ourselves to emphasize the importance of faith, but also as we think about people in our lives that we know inside the church, but, but especially outside of the church where there is, that there, is not, there is an indifference to Jesus Christ. And to think that God will not abide indifference to Jesus on the last day. 
Those who sit down at the consummation banquet, that which is pictured for us at Isaiah 25, will be those who have come knowing and loving the work of the Savior. That's what our Reformed confessions do such a good job of doing, that when God grants true faith, he's working in the heart to warm the affections so that not only do we look upon Jesus Christ in faith and reliance and trust, but we look upon him with a deep love, a growing love, a, a heart that is filled with joy for what he has done, at the danger of indifference. There's an abounding grace in Jesus Christ that demands repentance. There's an abounding grace in Jesus Christ which which demands the submission of the human heart. Listen in Luke 14, the the parable of the banquet. Jesus said, "A, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, "Uh, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet." Now great crowds accompanied him. This is now the end of the parable. And he turned and said to them, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We talk about this from time to time. Jesus is not calling us to hate our families. He's saying, unless I am on the throne of your heart, you are not my disciple. Unless all else pales in comparison to the glory and the beauty of Christ, you are not my disciple, he says. Here's the question. Are you a joy-filled attendee at the feast of the good king? Are you glad to be there? Do you see the richness of the glory and the grace that he provides? And are you glad to be at the feast of the good king? The glory of Jesus demands faith, but a gladness of faith. Jesus Christ can be at no other place than at the center of your hearts. No one who is there on the last day will be there begrudgingly. This is where the understanding of the gospel begins, that in Christ we are invited to the great banquet, that there is joy and gladness that that spills out from the table of the Lord. There is joy and laughter and gladness that goes forth from the life that is enjoyed in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Again, Fred Buchner puts it this way. 
There is little we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best, best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point, not anything that we ever did or were, but something that was done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of one who died in our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. We must see the good king. We must see the provision that he gives by teaching us, by healing us, by nourishing us in the wilderness on the way to our eternal home. And we are to be filled not only with faith, but with joy and gladness. As Calvinists, we hold to the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God in salvation, the certainty of what Jesus Christ has finished for us, remembering all of those things as we come to the end of October, remembering, thanking God for a reformation to reform the church, to bring us back to the scriptures, back to the doctrines of grace. We ought to be filled with the most joy amongst God's people because knowing of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, having finished the work and made our standing sure and certain before God, are you a joy-filled attendee at the banquet of the Lord? So then finally, let us, let us send out invitations to this banquet. And may our invitations be sealed with compassion. That is like the compassion of Jesus Christ. That is what must mark the, the mission of the church. What do we see in Jesus Christ? An, an outward-facing compassion. Facing the world in compassion for the lost. Look at how he sees human need and he meets human need. Look at how he is marked by love and mercy and compassion for those who need him. If you have fallen down before Jesus Christ, if you love his work on your behalf, then you would love it on behalf of all sinners. You would know what a joy it is to have the love and the mercy of Christ conquer your sinful heart. So then should it not be our goal, our delight to be used of God, to call others to himself, to play whatever small role we have in God's growing of his church. Should we not also have a similar compassion that reflects something of what God has done for us? May it be so, brothers and sisters. May his grace sustain us on the journey. And may we, just like Jesus, show compassion for sinners in the midst of a desolate place, in a pilgrim land. Let us trust in our good king. Let us come to him and serve him with joy. And let us face the world in his merciful compassion. Let's pray.